Good evening. It's good to be with you. We've made it to chapter 10 in our studies in 1 Corinthians. And if you've been tracking with us the last couple of visits, you know that Paul has been addressing um, Christian liberties, you know, those freedoms and rights that we have in Jesus Christ, and more specifically, how we are to exercise those in a spiritually mature, loving, godly way. You see it in chapter 8, a couple, couple visits ago. Paul uses the example of the leftover meat. Remember? The leftover meat from the sacrifices to the idols in the pagan temples? The Corinthian believers had asked him, hey, is it okay if we eat this? And he gave, gave a, a resounding qualified yes. Yes. There's nothing in and of itself in this meat that should control you. It has no power over you. Eat it. But if it offends another Christian's conscience because they don't have that knowledge, surrender that right or that freedom and don't eat. You see, chapter 8 really is just, hey, we have a lot of freedom within the limits of love. Right? And then chapter 9, he goes and gives an example of himself. Right? He sets up himself in his his office as an apostle and says, I have lots of rights as an apostle. I could take a a believing wife. I could really demand payment for what I'm doing here, but I'm going to do neither of those things. I'm going to surrender my rights and my liberties and my freedoms so that it would pave the way for the gospel to be more easily received, you see? It's chapter 9. It's a great little verse in verse 19 of chapter 9. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. Lots of freedoms, right? But he's going to surrender and give them up all so that the gospel would go forward, right? And as we get to chapter 10 today, We need to at least have an understanding of the last paragraph of chapter 9. Because if we want to understand chapter 10, and really the meat of it really is an example of the idea in the end of chapter 9, it's when Paul, if you may remember the end of last visit, he says we need to have self-control. We need to exercise discipline in our styles of life, as our, our lifestyle. Our lifestyle needs to match up with the gospel. And if it doesn't, after preaching these words and looking at my life and have it not lined up, I become disqualified as a minister. The last verse of chapter 9, it says, But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself would be disqualified. That's sobering. And not like disqualified, like you're going to lose your salvation or your position in Christ. That's not possible. What he's talking about is my ministry loses all its effectiveness. I'm disqualified to preach the gospel because my life isn't lining up for it. God's not going to endorse that, power it up, and grow it. In chapter 10, the first few verses is really an illustration of the disqualified life. A life that is really spiritually dead. 
And you may think, well, I'm not a minister. Why do I care if my ministry is disqualified? And I want to just encourage all of us today. We're all ministers in a way, right? Could it be that your marriage isn't all that it could be because you're living a disqualified life? Your ministry is disqualified because your lifestyle, you're not under control, you're not disciplined. You don't have the discipline and self-control to make your lifestyle match up with what you're saying and what you say you believe in. Could it be that work isn't all that it could be because you're undercut and disqualified by your lifestyle? You see, this applies to everybody. So we ought to pay attention to chapter 10 because it's an example of the disqualified life. It's the negative example of the nation of Israel. Let's check it out. Verse 1, chapter 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. I entitled these first five verses, <laughs> blessed but disqualified, right? They had all the position of blessing, advantage, opportunity, of any people in that dispensation. These were God's chosen people. And if you want to know how blessed they are, that's what the first four verses are. If you caught it here, it says, they were all under the cloud. And of course, this refers to the nation of Israel, right? As they came out of that great exodus into Egypt, into the desert, they had that cloud over them. From the time, right, they left Egypt to the time that Two of them made it to the promised land. They had the Shekinah glory of God by day over the top, guiding them and protecting them, showing them the way. And then by night, protect them. Light, pillar of light. You remember that? In the desert? Are you kidding? What a blessing. The cloud. And they passed through the sea. That sea, of course, refers to the Red Sea, right? that parted as they drove through in the Exodus, right? Were they behind left what? They left bondage in the curse of Egypt? Oh, that's a great symbol of deliverance, right? What a blessing. God delivered them. They passed through the sea and they were under the cloud. Man, that symbolism is protection, guidance, deliverance that God had for his people. What a blessed people. Amen? Amen. <clears throat> he goes on and says that they were baptized into Moses. What does this mean? As they passed through the Red Sea, they were closely identified with Moses. Moses, that great representative, right, of God to the people, that great mediator, right? He had direct, intimate access to God Almighty. And in Moses, these people were baptized and identified with, they had that same access. Now, that may not sound so amazing to you and I who have the indwelling spirit inside of us, but 
to these people, that is amazing. They have access to God Almighty through being baptized and identified with Moses. Blessings, opportunities, advantages. They all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. We know how awesome God took care of them, bringing them manna by the morning. And how he gave them water by the rock that Moses hit. Water came out. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. You see, God provided for them and refreshed them their whole trip. It's a blessing. Put yourself in those shoes. God was dealing uniquely with his chosen people. He was blessing them. He was ever present with them, putting them in a a very exalted spot to be his people. But it's very sobering. Verse five, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. It's pretty sobering if you know the numbers. Around two million Jews left Egypt And do we remember how many people made it to their destiny, to the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey that God promised them if they just had a little faith? Do you remember? Two. There are the bones of over 2,000 Jews, 2 million Jews in the desert somewhere testifying that this was a disqualified people. And that's what Paul's getting at. He's like, that's not the life we're destined to live. Yes, we are positioned really in an amazing, blessed way. But yet we can fail too and be disqualified. Says that they were overthrown in the wilderness. They perished there, useless. Not living the life that God wanted them to live, even though they were highly blessed. And like I said, blessed but disqualified. And if you want to know what disqualified them, we're going to get to it. Verse 6, now these things took place as examples for us that we may not desire evil as they did. They had a bent or a a desire towards things that lacked character. Literally, that's what that means in verse 6. This is an example for us to look at and not to do. This is what disqualified them, and this is what's going to disqualify us in our ministries. Let's check it out. There's about four or five things we need to look at here. Verse 7 starts with, Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Idolatry. This, I think, refers to the scene at the base of Mount Sinai. Do you remember that story? When Moses went up to get the Ten Commandments, he left for 40 days and 40 nights. He went up to commune with God and to get the Ten Commandments. He's gone for just over a month, and the people got restless, didn't they? And you remember it started with harmless feasts. Nothing wrong with feasts. And then they started dancing. Nothing wrong with dancing. 
right? But it got carried away quickly, very quickly. As it ended with them, as you remember, bowing down and worshiping a golden calf. Does that strike anybody as astounding? That the God of the universe was but yards away on the top of this mountain. And they were worshiping a golden calf at the base of the mountain? And when I read that, sometimes I say, that's so silly. God is so near to them. It's so close. Don't you want the real thing? Before we're too hard on them, we do the same thing. And we have the Godhead indwelling us. And we practice idolatry all the time. Idolatry is for today as well. And we look at this golden calf and say, why would somebody be so captivated by this shiny trinket? It seems so dumb. And then I catch myself. And I, if I'm honest, are amazed just how easily I am captivated, that my affections are surrounded by, and I'm living for something that just shines. It has no eternal value. There's still idols today, and I am amazed how easy I am captivated. We all have a desire to worship something. It should be our Lord Jesus Christ as Christians, amen? He should be supreme in our life. And when we make other things, no matter how good or how bad they are, bump out God and take supremacy in our lives so that we're living for it over our Lord, that's idolatry. And it happens all the time. Things that are good, things that are great, we can idolize. Things like our careers, things like sports, things like our kids and our families. Those things are not to be supreme in our lives. They should be important, and we should give some of those things our all. But Jesus Christ is number one. Amen? In this idolatry, if you want to disqualify yourself and find yourself useless spiritually, practice idolatry. That's why in verse 14, if we skip there, Paul says, flee idolatry. Quite literally, get your running shoes on and turn the other way and run away from it. Don't have anything to do with it. Get out of there. Because he knows how dangerous it is. Flee all idolatry. In the middle of this chapter, and we'll skip around a little bit, we're at 14, it says flee all idolatry. Why? Well, if you go to chapter, verse 21, it says, <laughs> because it edges out God. That's why. It can displace our love for Christ. He gives the great example of taking communion. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the tables of demons. You can't have it both ways. Jesus said the same thing. You can't serve two masters. You can't. 
And that's why idolatry is so bad. It's because when you're worshiping something else, you're not worshiping the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's the danger of it. It can displace our love for God. It also can awaken the jealousy of God. And you find that in verse 22. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Man, some people look at this. I don't know what famous person it was and said, I don't want want anything to do with a God who's jealous because they get the wrong idea of jealousy. This is a holy jealousy. It's a God who desires what he has bought and what he loves fiercely. And he will get you one way or the other. You want to be disqualified, go ahead and provoke the jealousy of our God through idolatry. And finally, the final thing idolatry does, if you look at verse 23, is that it can stumble people, other believers. Let me read that section for you. It says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. You ever been around somebody who idolizes something they ought not to idolize? When you're around them and they start talking about whatever it is, how much money they're making, how successful their business is, or how good and shiny their kids are, right? And you leave, how do you leave? I leave those conversations going, guy, am I making enough money? Is, is my kid a heathen? My kid's none of those things. You see, it, it causes a stumbling when you don't put those things behind our Lord and you're worshiping those things. That's why idolatry is so dangerous. It's so important for us to understand that idolatry is for today. We all bow down to our own golden calves. And the tricky thing is, is that our enemy is really smart and he gives you the right idol at the right time, right? When you're young and you don't have kids, you can't imagine somebody worshiping those snot-nosed things. Are you kidding me? But then have a kid and watch them get an A on a report card and just see how cute they are and you watch them win a sporting event, or you see them do a piano recital. You see them, and it's dangerous if you don't put God first. Amen? Some of us who have a bunch of kids and don't have a business look and go, why would you worship all that work? That seems dumb. Seems like a trinket. But then you find yourself in a position where you're trying to build a business. You're trying to build a reputation. You're trying to make it. And you find yourself captivated, allured. You find that thing taking supremacy in your life. And we have crossed a line when we do that. And if you want to be disqualified in your spiritual life, if you want your ministry to be rendered inoperable, whether it's your ministry as a husband, as a wife, as a father, as a mother, as a boss, as an employee, 
whatever it may be. If you want that to happen, practice idolatry. Or (laughs) use this example of what not to do. Amen? The second thing they did besides idolatry, if we keep reading here, is that in verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. So the second thing that disqualified them was sexual immorality. I think he's referring to Numbers chapter 25 there. And I don't know if you remember that story. Some of the, is the nation of Israel, some of those men practiced fornication with some of the women from Moab and, and from some of the Midianite women. They did that, and God sent them a plague, if you remember the story. And a bunch of people died. 23,000 people died of this plague because these men were sexually immoral with neighboring women. Death, 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 death. Do you remember how it ended? The plague only ended when Phineas, the grandson of Aaron, the great high priest, right? He drove a spear through two people that were having sex, right through their bellies, pierced them both together, and then it relented. <laughs> you can't make that stuff up. That's brutal. Right? Who? What? Brutal. You think, really? God, what? Mm, I think the message is God's warning us how dangerous sexual immorality is in our lives. It's serious business to God. Serious, serious business to God. It ruins ministries. If you put a pin in this place and you drew a line 30 miles around this place, you could name numerous ministries, big ministries that have fallen hard because of sexual immorality. Pastors not having self-control so they're not disqualified. And the collateral damage that comes from that is many and it's deep. And that's not even counting the stuff we don't see. I'll bet you those numbers pale in comparison to the relationships that we know were spouses or sexually immoral. And it just blows everything up like a grenade. Or young people with premarital sex, how it just blows their lives up. Sexual immorality is serious business to God. And that's why he told that story, I think. Is it's important. If you want to be useful and you want to be qualified in your ministries, if you don't want to be disqualified, you better off, you better exercise some self-control when it comes to sex. Why do I always have to talk about sex? <laughs> like Dr. Ruth, right? It's like, what's happening to me? And I'm just filling in this week. This wasn't even my chapter. I think it's destiny. 
Verse 9, another thing that disqualified them. For we must not put Christ to the test, as some of these Israelites did and were destroyed by serpents. You remember the story in Numbers chapter 21? Where they tested God. They presumed that he would be unfaithful to them. Do you remember? This food is loathsome. We have no water, right? (laughs) They were blaming God. It's you, God. You brought us to this place to die out in the wilderness. It's your fault. You, I'm going to presume you not to be faithful to me. After all they have been blessed with. That's what they were saying. You ever said that to God? Oh, come on. You brought me to this barren and desolate place. It's you. I'm mad at you. Presuming that he is not faithful, that he cannot deliver you. That's a dangerous place to be. That's a place where you're testing God. It's not good. It can lead to disqualifications. And you remember the story. God didn't take that very lightly either, did he? He sent the fiery serpents. Do you remember the story? And he started biting people and killing them. Everybody was sick, and it didn't relent. It didn't go away until Moses made that. Remember, he made that, uh, that little, the little fake bronze serpent, yeah, and held it up. And if you looked at it, right, you'd be healed. Oh. Testing God's probably not a good thing. You'll probably fail. And that's a, a, a surefire way of being disqualified in your ministry. Amen? Don't test God. Finally, it's one of my favorite ones, verse 16. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Grumbling, complaining, whining. even growling. That's what we do at my house. We don't even verbalize complaining. We just go, right? The nation of Israel was a murmuring group. They were so blessed, but they were quick to complain, right? This manna stinks. Is there anything else on the... the (laughs) on the menu, right? We have no water. We have no food. You left me out here alone. We're going to die. No one likes a whiner, and evidently, I don't think God does either. Grumbling. Man, isn't complaining, isn't it like the ultimate act of unthankfulness? It seems to me like when I start complaining about stuff, I forget just, man, I just forget how blessed we are as Christians. No one has it better than us. And I can complain about a whole bunch of things. And oftentimes, some of you know me, I do. (laughs) But in the end, we've been blessed beyond measure. Right? 
We ought to just count our blessings one by one and see what God has done in our lives. You might be surprised. It might turn your frown upside down. It might change the way you speak. It may start becoming effective again when you're just thankful that you have food and a house. We live in America where even poor people are fat. Think about it. (laughs) There's plenty to eat here. We should be thankful, you see. So listen. The example of the nation of Israel here, of being a disqualified bunch, has been driven home to us. Specifically, they desired evil, things that lack character, idolatry, sexual immorality, testing God, right? Murmuring and complaining. All these things, if you look at verse 11, happened to them as our example, quite literally, as a picture. They were written down for our instruction, Paul would say, on whom the end of the ages have come. Listen, this is a picture. This is a photo. In me, I suggest that we put ourselves in the photo. We're in this photo. We're in this photo. Because the very principalities and evil powers that seek to clip us and destroy us and devour us and discourage us and beat us down are the same spiritual principalities and powers that crush the nation of Israel. That's what Paul's trying to say here. Hey, this is the same stuff behind all this. You may look at a golden cap, but you got yours too. Put yourself in there. These stories are for you. They're examples. They're negative examples to look at and beware so that we don't live a disqualified life. Rather, we would live a life that we were destined to live, a focused life like Paul lived. Focus precisely on whatever he did, whether he ate or drank, he would glorify God in that. Amen? That's what we're destined to do, and we got to watch out, put ourselves in the picture. In verse 12, we're not only in the picture, but we're also a target. Look at it. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. And you're a target. Take heed, literally. Get in your stance spiritually. Get down. You think you're standing tall and everything's good? You better get down because it's coming. It's about ready to get on. Get your head level down. Let's get ready to rumble. Literally, in the Greek, you better get ready to fight because somebody's coming after you. You're a target. Sometimes I think we walk around here like, And life is to be enjoyed, don't get me wrong. God has given us so many freedoms and so many blessings just to smile and and enjoy. But this isn't a playground. This verse speaks a little bit more like a battleground, like there's a spiritual undergirding to what we're doing, right? There's There's powers that undergird everything we're doing, everything we might touch, right? Everything we might do. We need to realize there's a, there's a power behind that. And if it captivates us, it can control us. 
We need to be on guard and we need to realize that we're in a fight spiritually. And it's not against flesh and blood or things. It's against those things, those principalities and those dark powers that gird it underneath that are holding it. And it's there just like it was in Israel. It's there for us. And we need to watch out. We need to realize we're targets. We need to realize that we can win this battle in and through Jesus Christ. Amen? It's a battle we're fighting for. After all, eternity's at hand, right? Mm. We are definitely targets. <laughs> Check out verse 13. It's an encouraging verse. I'd say it's the most encouraging verse for me in all of these writings in First and Second Corinthians. It says this, listen. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Amen. That's an encouraging verse. When we are targets, when we're being tempted to be disqualified, right? It's that, listen, there's no temptation that has overtaken you, that is uncommon to man. So the first thing you want to learn from that verse is, hey, listen, <laughs> it's common. What you may be tempted with and what you are being pressed with is not new to the human experience, right? Well, Paul is saying, is there somebody right now, right now, that is either going through it or someone who has gone through it or someone that will go through this? What's happened to you isn't unique. And it's so hard when we're getting pressed and we're tempted to give in, to say, you know what? This has happened to somebody else. We instead say things like, you don't understand. People just don't understand me, right? It's common. We all have it coming if you didn't figure that one out yet. It's just your turn when you're tempted. Everybody gets a turn, right? And we need to realize right where as, as difficult as, as it can be when we're right in the middle of it all. And we're at that teeter of whether we're going to give in to our temptation and sin or whether we're going to hold the line and let the Lord power us up and, and, and blunt that. We need to realize that, hey, this isn't anything new. Playbook, it's the same for all of eternity. Someone else is going through this. We need to understand that what we're going through is common and someone else has been through it. I remember the time my youngest son, Gabe, learned this lesson. It was when he was a freshman in high school, and we had agreed to go down and wrestle in the biggest tournament in the world called Reno Worlds, literally. It's the biggest wrestling tournament in the world, and he was going to compete in it, and I was going to take him. I was going to coach him and take him down there. Well, we had tried a few more times, of times before and not had any success, so this time he said, hey, Dad, I really want to do good this time. I think I'm going to go down to the next weight class. I think I can do better there. And so I said, sure, whatever. So before we drove down, I said, Gabe, how's your weight? And he says, it's fine, it's fine. Get in the car, drive all the way to Reno. We get down to Reno. Hours before weigh-ins, jumps on the scale. I said, how's your weight, Gabe? He goes, 
not good, not good. I'm like, what do you mean not good? Like how not good? <laughs> like I think I'm like two and change over. Like he's two and a half pounds overweight and weigh-ins are in a matter of hours. I'm like, Gabe, you better, hey, listen, we got time. Get your stuff on. Let's get on the bike. Let's get this weight off. So Gabe takes all his stuff on. He looks like a marshmallow. And I take him down to the fitness room in this casino resort we were staying in. There was a bunch of people in there. I get him on this bike and he's, he's about cracked. I go, Gabe, you better get a sweat going. You're not going to make it. And I already paid for this tournament. I already drove down here. You're going to make weight. And I started to push him a little bit. I'm like, Gabe, get on that bike and start pedaling. And he started flopping, his feet started falling off and acting like, like, Gabe, you better get it. And I, the harder I pushed, the more he cracked. And he wasn't able to break a sweat. He just didn't want, he just was done. It got to the point there where he just melted down. He looked at me right in the middle of this fitness room and he yelled at me and he said, you're the worst dad in the world screams at me. I was like, so I grabbed him by the neck, threw him on the ground. I punched him right in the face as hard as I could. No, I didn't do that. But I let him have it. Oh my goodness. I think it's pro I let him have it in front of everybody. I said, who do you think you're talking to? <laughs> Back in my day, we, we almost killed ourselves making weight two pounds in two hours. What are you talking about? Who do you think you're talking to? I made more weight than you'll ever even live. What is, what's wrong with you? The last time I made weight, they had to start an IV to get me off the ground. I just started going off on him, right? I look around, it's like crickets. I mean, everybody that was working out, it's like, I'm out of here, I leave. Evidently, Gabe forgot the fact that someone else had been through what he was going through, right? It wasn't anything new. It's such a narcissistic baby way to look at life, don't you think, sometimes, that we take on? You don't know how I feel. Yeah, I do. I, I felt that before. Buck up. God's going to get you through this, right? Sometimes when we go through it all, we get squeezed so hard, we're like, nobody understands. And frankly, we just need God's word to say, hey, listen, just keep reading. But God is faithful. He measured you out for this, and he will get you through this. And by the way, you're not the only one hurting right now. The reality is that gym was full of about 50 guys doing exactly the same thing. It's such a narcissistic baby way that we look. And Paul's just trying to encourage us and say, listen, this has been done before. The enemy has the same stu stupid rote temptations. They've, they've come at, through history. You're now got a dart. What are you going to do with it? Are you going to be like everybody else? You're going to be like a spiritually mature Christian and blunt it. The second thing he says and we want to learn from this, is that not only is it common, but it's measured or controlled. It's not like God's just putting you in a trial that... You know, when I took boards, they, they'd have these tests on these board exams that you weren't supposed to get right. It's like, what? Why'd you put that on there? I don't know. We just wanted to see 
They, they didn't even count. So it's like, it's not like that when we get through a trial. You, you're supposed to win this. You have the ability to win it. God has measured you. That's what it says. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. He's weighed and measured you and the trial and the temptation and said, yeah, that's about right. Let's see what he does. He's faithful. He's measured you. It fits you, you see, and he'll get you through it. Amen? The last thing, he'll provide a way out, a way of escape. There's always that process and temptation going into sin. There's, there's a time when it clicks where you could take the escape route. And he's saying, it's always there. Look for it. By the grace of God, his grace is sufficient. You think you're not strong? Well, in your weakness, he is strong. He'll get you through this. It's a very encouraging verse, amen? You see, we're much more than conquerors in Jesus Christ who loves us, amen? Those are Paul's words. We're meant to win <laughs> these temptations and to escape them. He wants us not to live a disqualified life like the nation of Israel. He wants us to have our bodies under control, have some self-control, right? Have your lives line up with your words. No idolatry, sexual immorality. I mean, if we knew the gravity of this, we would not play around with some of these things we do, like porn and soft porn. And this kind of, it just kills it, right? We want to test God. We don't want to complain. We want to see God faithful so that we can live a life that we're destined to life, a focused life. And we're going to finish with that. Verse 31, this is the life we're destined to live. It's the life Paul lived. Verse 31, so whether you eat or drink or whether you do whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. That's the destined life for the Christian. And so whatever we do, something as little as eating or drinking, whatever we do, going to work, the in-between times, that's the great litmus test, is what we're doing. The freedoms that we enjoy in Christ, are they bringing glory to God? That's a pretty simple principle. It's one I think we ought to live by. It's the one Paul lived by, and it's why he had such a powerful life. It's a life that the effect is still being reverberated throughout history some 2,000 years later, don't you think? We're still talking about the strength of his ministry and the words that God's Spirit wrote through him so that we would do all things for the highest motives, We'd give God the glory. And if we can't exercise our freedoms in that principle, we ought not to be doing them. Amen? We have a great choice set before us today. And it's a choice 
to live like the nation Israel did when they were in their death march in the desert, not living by faith, never entering into the land that they were promised, bent towards evil, practicing idolatry, sexual immorality, all those things, they were disqualified. May we exercise our self-control to keep our lifestyles in line with the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ so we can be useful, destined to give glory to God in everything we do. Amen? Amen. So, Father, thank you for this time in your word, and thank you for chapter 10. I pray that each one of us would do all things for your glory, little and big and in between. May we give you glory and honor in our lives as you have in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, guys.